yes, God. We need the rain of your spirit, O oh God. The wind of your spirit, O oh God. We bless you, O oh God. We bless you, O oh God. Father, touch your people today. Touch hearts and lives today. Father, do a work that only you can do. God, you know each man, each woman that is here today. You know what they have need of. So God, would you have your way? Pour out your spirit. Fill us up, God. Fill us up. Last night in our prayer and fasting, we closed the evening. And I think there was around 25 who were here. We were praying in the old sanctuary. I just felt led that we needed to walk the halls. And so we walked the halls and some walked outside and, 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 and most of us came down in this room and we walked in between the rows and we touched the chairs and, and we prayed and, and we believed God that he was going to be here today, that we were going to meet with the living God. Amen. How many of you want to meet with God today? Amen. We believe that God is here. God's presence is here. And I want to invite you to remain standing, if you're able to, this morning and open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter number 17. First Kings 17. First Kings 17, I have the privilege to minister the, the word of the Lord. Our pastor is not with us uh, this morning. He's up in North Jersey preaching at a pastor appreciation service for another church. And then he's going to be traveling home to, to northern Maine to be uh, with his mother for her birthday. And so how many of you will commit to praying for our pastor today and over the next few days? So I have the privilege to, to minister the word of the Lord, 1 Kings 17, and in verse number 1, if you're there, say amen. It says, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, Ahab is the king, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here. Turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith. Turn to your neighbor and say, Cherith. Which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. I love that verse. He went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, two meals a day. And he drank from the brook. 
I want you to look at verse number 7. It says, And it happened after a while that the brook dried up. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had not been no rain in the land. This morning, I want to speak to those whose brook has run dry. If you've ever experienced a moment where all you've come to depend upon was taken away, I want to speak to you this morning. If you're in the middle of a spiritual drought where the Lord seems far from you and his presence seems to be strangely absent, you've worshipped God on the mountaintop before, but now you've been in the desert for weeks and, and months. If it's easier to squeeze water out of a rock than to find the words to pray, I'm here to deliver a message of encouragement and comfort this morning. Amen. You see, droughts happen in every area of life. We're going to pray in a moment, then I'll have you sit. In baseball, it's called a slump. And even those in the Hall of Fame experience them. In the faith, it's called a spiritual drought. Spiritual famine. It's called a, a desert or wilderness experience. When the brook runs dry in our souls. Have you ever been there? Maybe that's where you are this morning. When the heavens are brass. The easiest thing to do is to wrap ourselves in a cocoon of despair and quit. But church, I want you to know despairing and quitting are never godly options. And what we're going to discover today is that the spiritual desert experiences, they're essential for growth, development in the faith. And this is you today. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Because today... You're in good company. Moses tended sheep on the backside of the wilderness for 40 years. Today you're hiding with David in a cave. Today you're sitting next to Job. Today you're with Jesus in the wilderness. That's you today. You're in good company. Let's lift our hands one final time. Father, as I stand behind the sacred desk, I ask God that I wouldn't speak my words or my thoughts or my ideas on the subject, but that God, I'd be faithful to, to speak your words. I pray that I, my preaching would not be with wise and persuasive words, but rather a demonstration of the Spirit's power that our faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but our faith would rest in the wisdom of God. I pray, God, that your word would go forth this morning with boldness, clarity, that, God, our hearts would be open to hearing, to receiving from you. Father, last night we prayed against distractions that would come this morning. We pray against confusion and doubt and worry, 
fear. We pray, God, that our hearts would be open to hearing what you would want to say to the church. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. And God, I pray for those that are here today who would be honest and say, that's me. That's where I'm at. I'm in the wilderness. Experiencing a spiritual drought, a spiritual famine in my life, in my heart. It's been a long time since I've sensed the presence of God. Lord, would you touch them today? And minister. And pour out your spirit. We thank you for it. We thank you for it. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. Give God praise. Before you're seated, turn and shake five people's hands. I said five, not 15. (laughs) In 1 Kings 17, all of Israel is in a spiritual drought, and it's it's a drought that was brought on by their continual rebellion and their apostasy. You need to understand the context. You need to understand the history. For 100 years, Israel has lived under three kings, Saul, David, In Solomon, it was near the end of Solomon's reign that a a civil war will break out and the kingdom will be divided. You have the northern kingdom, Israel. You have the, the southern kingdom, Judah. And it's important to note that the southern kingdom, before taken into captivity, had 17 kings over a period of 300 years. So again, this is the southern kingdom, Judah, 17 kings over a period of 300 years, and we know from the word of God that eight of them did what was right in, in the sight of the Lord. So they'd eight good kings. The balance of them were evil. But when you get to the northern kingdom, it's a little different. 200 years before their captivity, and the northern kingdom had 19 kings, and all 19 kings different than the southern kingdom were evil. So think about it. You have 19 national leaders in succession, 19 kings ruling back to back. The scripture says who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I have an interesting chart in my, in my office, and it lists all of the, the, the kings in, in the northern kingdom, and all of them were evil. And, and next to their name, they received the designation, not evil, but it's either bad Mostly bad, extra bad, and worst of all. And one of the kings receives the designation of being the worst of them all. And in our text today, it's King Ahab. King Ahab is the worst king that ruled in the northern kingdom. He was an idol servant, pagan 
worshiping leader. In fact, here's what the word of God says in 1 Kings 16.32. It says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, if that weren't bad enough alone, if you know your history, Ahab will marry the Phoenician princess Jezebel. Jezebel was a woman who was more evil than Ahab. So understand the context. Jezebel, she's the one who actually ruled the kingdom, not Ahab. She was the power behind the throne. She was the one who initiated Baal worship. And under their leadership of of Ahab and, and, and Jezebel, the chasm between God and his people had reached its widest breadth. We're talking about bloodshed, assassinations, murder, malice, intrigue, immorality, conspiracy, deception, hatred, idolatry. And you have to understand that it's in this context of wickedness and rebellion that God sends the prophet Elijah onto the scene. In this context, and and, and Elijah comes seemingly out of nowhere. This is the first time in the word of God that we are introduced to Elijah the prophet. There's no introduction. We don't know who his parents are. We don't know what tribe that he's from. He just shows up. He, he drops out of the skies. And this is why the Jews fancy that he was actually an angel sent from heaven. But the apostle James assures us that he was a man just like us. And he was a man that was used mightily by God. A man of tremendous courage, tremendous faith, tremendous commitment. He's one of the twin pillars of the Hebraic faith in life. He appears alongside Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. In the New Testament, they mention Elijah more than any of the other Old Testament prophets. He's a man who appears out of nowhere and whose exit from this life is even more fantastic. And we know Elijah many times. He he stands alone. In our text, he stands alone before King Ahab. We know that he stood alone on top of Mount Carmel. The word of God says in 1 Kings chapter 18 in verse 22, it says, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left. I'm the only prophet of the Lord who is left. But Baal has 450 prophets like Esther and Moses and Joseph. He was willing to stand alone against the strongest force of his day without reluctance and proclaim the name of the Lord and proclaim the name of the Lord he did. For those of you taking notes, Elijah's name means my God is Jehovah. Or the Lord is God. What a powerful name. Jehovah is the Hebrew name for God. And this is his name. Elijah means my God is Jehovah. You have to understand Ahab and Jezebel were in control of the land and Baal was the God they worshipped. But when Elijah burst onto the scene, his very name proclaimed there is only one God. His name is Jehovah and he is the one that I serve. Amen. 
And with boldness, with clarity, look at what the scripture says in verse 1. It says, as the Lord of the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be... There shall be no dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now, you have to understand the dynamic of the judgment that was pronounced before King Ahab. You see, Baal was worshipped as the god of rain. And Baal was worshipped as the god of fertility who controlled the seasons and the crops and the lands. But we know the word of God says in Psalms 147, who covers the heavens with clouds? Who provides rain for the earth? Who makes the grass to grow on the mountains? And Job will give us an answer in Job chapter 5 in verse number 10. Job says it's God who gives the rain on the earth and it's God who sends the water onto the fields. And so the prophet of the Lord, he thunders on the scene. His name means my God is Jehovah. He stands before the wicked king and he says, Jehovah God sends me today. And Jehovah God says there will be no rain, no dew on the land except at my word. So Elijah, he comes out of nowhere. He appears in the biblical narrative and pronounces judgment upon Israel. And even the famed prophet himself will have to be subject to it. So severe is this drought going to be that not even dew will be formed in the morning. Now, if you're Elijah the prophet, you might be thinking to yourself, I've arrived. This is my big moment. God is using me. I just confronted the most powerful man on the face of of the earth, and, and I pronounce judgment. Now I'm just going to sit back, put up my feet, and watch as God judges the people. But look at verse number two. It says, And the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here, and turn eastward, and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. God was saying, Don't hang out. Get out of here. Go east. And I, I want to hide you by the brook Cherith. And there's four things that we're going to see in this story this morning. We're going to see the protection of God. We're going to see the preparation of God. We're going to see the provision of God. And we're going to see the purposes of God. You see, I believe that there are two primary reasons why God sends Elijah to the brook of Cherub. Number one, for safety and protection. He's now a, a wanted man. There's now a bounty out on his head. In fact, if you read later in the story, the scripture says that Ahab searched every nation and kingdom looking for the prophet Elijah. So God sends him to Cherith for his safety and protection, but God also sends him to Cherith for training, for a season of preparation. There's still work that God wants to do in Elijah's life. If you're taking notes, I want to want you to write this down. If you're not, you've got to really pay attention because if you miss this next part, you're going to miss the balance of the sermon. But if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write down Cherith. It means to cut off. It means to cut down. Cherith means to cut off. It means to cut down. In the Hebrew, it means to be cut off from others. 
It means to be cut down as one might cut down a tall timber. A few years ago, I had some deacons from the church. They were over my house, and, 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 and I won't mention them by name, but Tim, you were there, and, and, and Bob was there, and there was a few others. And we had some large trees, and they were very large and a very precarious spot, and I needed help bringing down these trees. And, and I was concerned. I didn't want the tree to, to, to fall on the house, and, and, and so we started cutting down the trees. Well, well, the good news is that the trees all were cut down, amen? And the trees did not land upon the house. The bad news is when the tree was cut down, it landed on my shed, my fence, my neighbor's shed. And then after, if that wasn't bad enough, there was another tree that fell onto another tree and it was being supported by the tree. And so we had to cut that one that had been cut down out of that tree and it flipped out of the tree and it landed on the vinyl fence in the development behind my house. Do you remember a few years ago we preached a sermon, what to do on the worst day of your life? You should have heard that phone call with the insurance company. We cut down a tree, we took out two sheds and two fences. This is what Cherith means. Cherith means to cut off. It means to cut down. Elijah is going to God's boot camp. And what does the drill sergeant say to the recruit? He says, I'm going to cut you down to size. How many of you have heard that before in boot camp? I'm going to cut you down to size. And God was saying to Elijah, I'm going to cut you off. I'm going to cut you down. There's preparation. There's training that still needs to be done. There's a work that still needs to be done in your heart, in your life. Now, when we think of Elijah, we, we, we typically think of two events. We think of Elijah being carried away to heaven on a chariot of fire. And we also think of his great victory on the top of Mount Carmel when he defeats 450 prophets of Baal. But let me tell you this morning, church, before we can be trusted to stand on Carmel, we must first pass by the dry brook. Before God can use his servants, he must train them. Before he can use us greatly before men, he must first break us down before him. And so God will cut him off and God will cut him down. God is still working in Elijah's heart. And that's what this chapter is all about. It's the making of Elijah, the prophet of the Lord. I want you to look at the screen. In verse number one, we're introduced to Elijah the Tishbite. But in verse 24, we're introduced to Elijah, the man of God. Why? What made the difference? God will take Elijah to Cherith and God will cut him down and God will cut him away for a season. Some of us really want to go to the top of the mountain. How many of you want to go to the top of the mountain? But God many times wants to take us down into the valley first. Maybe some of you are here today and you're in a season where you've been cut down. You're in a season where you've been cut off. You had dreams. You had goals. You had ambitions. You had 
desires. But God today has you in cherith. God in his divine wisdom has cut you away. And God has cut you back. And he cuts us not to harm us. He cuts us not to hurt us, but he cuts us down and he cuts us away because he loves us and he cares for us and he has a great plan for all of our lives. And this is one of the hardest lessons that we'll have to learn in the faith that before we can go to Mount Carmel, we've got to spend time in Cherith. Moses spent 40 years on the backside of the wilderness. Joseph was in prison, falsely accused and isolated. Jacob wrestled with God. In the wilderness, Job was cut down and cut off for a season. David was isolated. The apostle Paul, who had more degrees than than letters in the alphabet, he spent three years in the Arabian desert learning about God. There will not be Mount Carmel experiences if there are not cherith moments with the Lord. You see, God knew that the prophet needed more training in secret if he was going to be used by God in public. And so Elijah is cut off. He's cut off from, from, from everything. He's cut off from his friends. He's, he's cut off from social interactions. He, he's cut off from what's happening in the world. He's cut off from the limelight. He's, he's cut off from the attention. He is literally all by himself. And if you understand and know the topography, you know that at this point he's in a ravine. And ravines are long and they're narrow. And ravines are dark and, and, and they're cold. And they're lonely. This was not going to be a weekend stay. This was not going to be a bed and breakfast. Where you check in on Friday and you check out on Monday. How would you like to live in a ravine for a year? You wouldn't. Because a ravine is dark. It's narrow. It's cold. It's lonely. And and some of you may be here today and you're in an emotional cherith right now. You're going through a season In your life that seems dark, cold, deep, and lonely, you need to know you're not alone. All of God's saints have gone through a cherith. Amen. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Here's point number one. We must be as willing to be set aside as we are to be used. Amen. That's not one of those points that you go shouting and, and, and screaming amen. But we must be as willing to be set aside as we are to be used. We all want to be used by God, but are we willing to be set aside? There was a season when I went to Bible schools. It was my sophomore year. I went to school in Central Florida, and there was a lot to do in Central Florida. And the big thing was on Friday night, you, you jumped in a car with all of your friends and, and you went and you, you, you had a good time. I'm not talking about sin or immorality, but you just, we just went out and, and hung out and, and, and we had a good time. But there was a season in my life where God said, you're not going anywhere. I said, God, but these, these are my friends. And you brought them into my life. And I want to develop relationships. And, and, and for a season, God took me to Cherith. God cut me back. God cut me away. And I watched every Friday for a whole semester. As my friends' vehicles would just leave the campus and the sounds of laughter and and music. And God took me to the dorm chapel. And there in Cherith, he cut me back. 
and he cut me away. But you see, church, God was still doing a work in my heart. And I learned an important lesson that year, and it's this. If you take care of the depth of your devotion, God will take care of the breadth of your ministry. If you take care of the depth of your devotion, God will take care of the breath of your ministry. And God was saying, it's time to come out of the spotlight. We need more time together, Elijah. You need more training. And, and, and look at verse number two, because Elijah might be thinking, God, what are you going to have me do? Look at verse two. And God said, I want you to hide by the brook Cherith. You're going to hide. There's a powerful lesson here, church. We must never overlook the power of the hidden life. Amen? We must never overlook the power of the hidden life. It was in this place, hidden away, that Elijah became a man of God. It was here that he learned to trust God totally. It was here that Elijah learned to lean upon the Lord. You see, church, before we can ever give out, we must first take in... For God can pour anything out of our vessels, he must first put something inside of them. We all need to learn the value of the hidden life. God was saying to Elijah the prophet, I'm going to cut you off, I'm going to cut you away, and you're going to hide by the brook. You see, there's a part of us that the world sees, and there's a part of us that the world does not see. And it's the part that men do not see that defines us. It's not the raising of the hands that defines us. It's not the clothing that we wear that defines us. It's not our charisma that defines us. It's not our gifts and our talents and our abilities that define us. It's our character that defines us. It's who we are in secret that defines us. It's that time spent alone in the presence of God that defines us and makes us great and useful for his kingdom and for his glory. Amen. We think that God should use us more often than he does, but, but God in his wisdom, he hides us away. His plan is to grow us up in private, amen? God wants to grow us up and develop us in private so that he might display us for his glory in his time. This is the nature of Cherith, to be cut down, to be cut away. It might mean being passed over. It might mean being left out, but never forget, God knows exactly where you are. And if he sent you to cherub, he is hitting you away so that he might reveal you in his time. Amen. So we see the protection, the preparation of God, but we also see his provisions. Look at verse number four. It says, and it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded that the ravens to feed you there. You see, church, here, here's point number two. If you're taking notes, God never calls us to endure a situation that he himself is not prepared to sustain us through. Amen? You see, God's direction always includes 
God's provision. Amen. His direction always includes his provision. And God says to Elijah, while you're in a season where you're being cut off and you're being cut down, I'm going to sustain you from a bubbling brook and I'm going to use the ravens to bring you life-sustaining food. Think about it. The ravens are actually going to be God's catering service. We're not talking about meals on wheels. We're talking about meals on wings. Amen. And it's unusual. But remember, Elijah is a figure of John the Baptist whose meat was locust and wild honey. And this story should encourage all of our hearts today because if God can furnish a table in the wilderness and make ravens deliver us food, then God is able to supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. Never forget this morning, church, where God God guides, he provides. Amen. Where God guides, he provides. Say it with me. Where God guides, he provides. Say it to your neighbor this morning. You see, our God has boundless resources. 170 times in the word of God, 170 times In the scripture, it's clear that God will provide for us for every part of our being, spirit, soul, and body. In church, if God can sustain a few million Israelites in the wilderness, think about it. A few million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years, he can take care of us. And God knows exactly what we have need of. If if he has to, he'll move heaven and earth to see that our needs are met. Amen. So God says to the prophet, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to prepare you. I'm going to provide for you. I want you to go hide. And then look at Elijah's response. I love it. In verse number five, it says, so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and he stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. I love this. The scripture says he went and did. We often go and do not. But think about it. What would the church look like? And what would our lives look like if we went and did all that God commanded of us to do? He went and did, not according to how he felt. He went and did, not according to what others thought. He went and did according to the direction and the commands of the Lord, not a moment's hesitation. Elijah obeyed. He didn't even ask why. When, when God called Moses, Moses gave the guy five excuses. He gave him five reasons why he wasn't able to go, but not a moment's hesitation. You see, whether in the palace or in private, Elijah was ready to serve the Lord. Whether in the spotlight or in silence, he was satisfied to be lost in the secrecy of the quiet hills beside a brook east of the Jordan. You see, for Elijah, he'd rather be in the worst place imaginable with the Lord than in the greatest place imaginable without him. Elijah immediately obeys and he hides himself and he stays at the brook Cherith. Amen. Now look at verse number seven. This is where the story gets good. Are you getting anything out of this this morning? Look at verse number seven. It says, and it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had not been rain 
in the land. You see, church, if the heavens fail, the earth fails. And one morning he notices that the brook wasn't gushing over the rock or bubbling as freely as before. Keep in mind, this, is, this single stream is his lifeline. And Elijah checked it carefully. He had a stick with marks and, and, and he gauged the depth of this brook, the, the depth of this stream. In, in the original language, it, it suggests this didn't happen overnight, but it was a gradual process. And, and over the next few days, he watched his brook dwindle and shrink until it was only a trickle. Then one morning, no more water, just wet sand. And then the sand dried up, and then the sand hardened, and, and cracks appeared in the parched bed. What happened? The brook dried up. Have you ever been in a place, church, where the brook dried up in your life? When something good is all of a sudden gone in your life. When something that was enjoyable is now empty. What was refreshing to you is, is no longer there. And the brook dries up in, in your life. That job that you invested years in, it, it dries up. Our, our bank accounts, our, our retirements, the, the, the pension, it dries up. Our, the spouse that we have given ourselves to completely walks out on us. Our health that has always been so robust, it breaks. What happened? The brook dries up a moment of drought, an instant of insufficiency, an occasion of lack. Church, there will be moments in all of our lives when the reservoir of our sustenance will be drained of all of its vitality and the brook will dry up. That thing that we depended upon, that thing that we relied in, that thing that we trusted in is now gone. The brook is now dry. It was just here a moment ago. But now, it's gone. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I've experienced this. You've experienced this. This leads us to our third point. Point number three, if you're taking notes, and I love this. Dried up streams don't cancel out God's plans. Often, they cause it to emerge. Amen? Dried up streams, they don't cancel out God's plans. Often, they cause it to emerge. We sometimes think that because the brook is dry that God has abandoned us that God has forgotten all about us, but I believe it means that God is up to something, that God is getting ready to do something great. I believe that there are reasons why the brook dries up in our lives. And I want to give you these reasons this morning, three reasons why I believe the brook will dry up in our lives. Number one, brooks dry up to keep us from depending upon the brook. Amen? The brooks dry up to keep us from depending upon the brook. Sometimes God allows the brook to run dry because we're trusting too much in the brook than we are God. We start trusting in the blessing more than the blesser. We start trusting in the provisions more than the provider. And if you're trusting in the brook more than God, sometimes God will simply just take it away. There was a young lawyer, and he just finished school, and he, he landed his first job, and he was excited to start working. Good salary, great benefits, and the first thing he does to celebrate 
his achievement. He goes out and he buys a really nice fancy car. And I don't want to tell you the kind of car he bought. In, in case you drive that car, you'll think I'm picking on you this morning. So we'll just say it was a really nice fancy car. He shows up to work his first day and he's excited and he parks in the middle of the parking lot and he, he opens the car door and out of nowhere another vehicle comes and, and, and takes off the car door. He's upset. He gets out of the car and he's, he's emotional and I can't believe this happened. I can't believe you, you were reckless and, and you drove and, and you, you took the door off and, he, and he's so upset and the officers, the police come and they're on the scene and the officer saying, sir, you've got to calm down. Sir, you've got to calm down. It's okay, sir. You're not understanding. Look at me. Look at me. He says, you're so upset about the door. You didn't even notice that in the process, he also took off your arm. The young man looks down at his arm and he looks at the officer and says, not my Rolex too. Church, this is why we have to turn every blessing into a praise. We have to turn every blessing into a praise because every blessing we don't turn into praise has the potential to turn into pride in our hearts and in our lives. And if we're not careful, we'll start depending upon the brook more than we do God. We'll start depending upon the job and the finances and the career and the bank accounts more than God. We'll start putting our trust in other things more than God. And sooner or later, that one thing you counted on, that one thing that was a source of security for you will no longer be in your life. The job will disappear. The business will close. The relationships will explode. And sooner or later, the brook will dry up. And what are you going to do when the brook dries up in your life? This is why God brought Elijah to Cherith to cut him down, to cut him away because God wanted Elijah to learn faith and trust. God wanted Elijah to put all of his faith and all of his trust in him, and he desires that we do the same. Amen. The second reason why brooks dry up in our lives, number two, sometimes God allows our brooks to dry up to move us to another place in life. Sometimes God allows our brooks to dry up, to move us to another place in life. Oftentimes, it's what God removes that makes room for greater things to come. You see, God has no intention of leaving Elijah in the ravine, leaving him in that rut for the rest of his life. And often what we think is bad, what we think is devastating, the brook has dried up, and I lost my this, and I lost my that, and you can fill in the blank. It can actually be the best thing that happened to us. Sometimes the things that you thought were going to destroy you are actually developing you. They're making you the great person that you are. They're building your character. They're developing you. And sometimes God will turn the water supply off because he's saying, I want to move you to a new place. And God is closing one door, but he's opening another door. He's drying up the brook because God is getting ready to move the prophet. And if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll see that God is going to send Elijah from Cherith to, to Zarephath. 
Zarephath is not even in, in Israel. It's, it's modern-day Lebanon today. And it's the hometown of Jezebel, the evil queen. God, you're sending me from a dry brook to the hometown of Jezebel? It's a hundred-mile journey, the middle of a drought. He's going to travel through dangerous territory. Remember, he's a marked man, and there are one in signs all over for, for Elijah the prophet. But God knew that there was a widow, and there was a son that needed a blessing. And God was going to use Elijah the prophet and Zarephath to be a blessing to this widow and to this son. We may not understand why God allows our brooks to dry up a church in the midst of our emptiness, in the midst of our sorrow and our disappointment and our pain. God is drying up our brooks so he can move us to a deeper level of faith, trust, and commitment. Amen. If the worship team could just come, or TJ, if you could just come to the keyboard at this time. I want to wind this down this morning. The third reason why God will allow the brooks to dry up in our lives. Number three, to prove that he's not forgotten us. To prove that God has not forgotten us. God will often drive the brook. God could have left Elijah in that rut. He could have left him there alone, but God cared about Elijah. And for that reason, he dried up the brook so that Elijah could experience something better. You see, church, when we hit a tough spot, our tendency is to feel abandoned, it's to become resentful, to think, how could God forget me? But let me tell you, church, never forget, never forget this morning when the brook dries up in our lives that God is still alive and well. He knows what he's doing, and he hasn't forgotten about us. Amen. God is alive and well. He knows what he's doing. He hasn't forgotten about us. When the brook dries up in my life, I love to go to Isaiah chapter 49. It's on the screen. It says, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. And my Lord has forgotten me. God says, can a woman forget her nursing child? Not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget. Yet I will not forget you when the brook runs dry. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. And your walls continually before my love how it reads in the amplified it says indeed i have inscribed a picture of you on the palms of my hands have you ever thought the lord has forsaken me the lord has abandoned me the lord has forgotten all about me things were growing great but then all of a sudden out of nowhere the brook dries up but god says in the midst of your dried up brook you are not forgotten because you are written on the palms of my hands and your life is continually before me. And God says, can a woman forget her nursing child? You wouldn't think so. But church, it happens all the time. Children are abandoned. They're neglected. They're forgotten by their earthly parents. Thank God for foster parents. 
Thank God for parents who, who adopt, but not with God. God never abandons. He never neglects. He never for, for, forsakes us because we are permanently inscribed on the palms of his hands. Let that sink in this morning. Take a moment and glance at your hands. Go ahead. Now imagine that they are God's hands and that you are right there and know that our ways are continually before the Lord. There's not one moment of life that goes by without his knowing of where we are and what we're doing and how we are. God never has to look around and say, now what did I do with Pastor Joe? I've misplaced him again. It doesn't happen. Why? Because I'm right here. My picture, it's inscribed on the palms of his hands. And my life is continually before the Lord. God never has to admit, oops, how did you wind up there? God says, that's exactly where I want you. But God, it hurts. It hurts, God. I remember the times when it was so much easier. I remember when I drank from the brook and God says, it's where I want you. I see you there. I haven't forgotten you. Trust me through this. You see, church, dried up streams don't cancel out God's plans. Often, they cause it to emerge. You may be here this morning and say, Pastor Joe, that's, that's me today. The brook has dried up in my life. What do I do now? We didn't read it earlier, but it's, it's on the screen. It's verse number eight. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, The word of the Lord came to the prophet, saying, If that's you this morning, and the brook has dried up, what do you do? You wait for the word of the Lord. And what do I do when I'm waiting? What do I do when I'm waiting for the Lord? Can I tell you, church, you simply hide in the hidden place. And you wait for the word of the Lord. I'd like every head bowed, every eye closed. I just want to know who I'm speaking to this morning. I'm not going to embarrass you today. I'm not going to call you to the front. But if you're here today, you're willing to say, Pastor Joe, that's me. Right now, God has cut me off. He's cut me away. Right now, I'm in the brook Cherith. The brook has dried up in my life.